0: Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Frank Gomez and this is All Things STEM. Today I have two guests, Drs. Brittany Beck and Anche Lahr. Brittany is Assistant Professor of Teacher Education and Director of the Citizen Scientist Project at Cal State Bakersfield CSUB. In 2018, she was awarded a grant from the U.S. Department of Education to support citizen science projects. Anche is professor of biology at CSUB. Her research focuses on understanding Valley Fever surrounding the Kern County region. Doctors Beck and Laura have partnered to create a citizen science project to investigate Valley Fever and help educate the Kern County community on its effects. Today, we will share their story and discuss what citizen science is and how it has enhanced their collaborative research. We will also discuss how their project impacts local Kern County high school students and the community. Welcome. It's great to have you both on the show today. Your work is very interesting, and I'm excited to discuss it with you today.
1: Thank you for having us, Frank. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be
0: here. Brittany, I'd like to begin a conversation with you. Citizen science, or CS, has multiple origins as well as differing concepts. The novice, help me understand what CS is, who is typically involved? and what communities are often impacted? Of
1: course, so citizen science, broadly defined, is research that is performed collaboratively between scientists and curious members of the broader public. Through citizen science, formally trained scientists are able to increase the scale of their data collection, speed of their data analysis, diversity of the data they collect, and the diversity of perspectives that are brought to the data. The curious members of the public who participate have the opportunity to learn about community issues, better understand the nuances of scientific protocols, contribute to scientific discovery, ensure their community is represented in the data that is collected, and ultimately ensure their ways of knowing are brought to data analysis. Uh, We like to say that a citizen scientist can be anyone, and citizen science can happen anywhere. And so for citizen science, I think It's important for everyone, yet our work tends to focus on historically marginalized communities who have not been robustly represented in the data that shapes our local, state, national, or even global decision-making.
0: Great. Thanks, Brittany. Tell us about your current CS program uh, that you manage at uh, CSUB and the Kern County Valley Fever Project Initiative.
1: Sure. So the, the Citizen Scientist Project, that's the formal name for, for our, our, uh, our broader initiative, is designed to build the capacity of teachers and students to apply their budding C-STEM competencies to identify and address issues of community concern in collaboration with scientists and community agencies. And in doing so, we hope to democratize science by including more diverse voices in question posing, data collection, data analysis, and data informed advocacy in Kern County and beyond. To operationalize, visualize, and amplify the work of citizen science in K-12 and teacher education, we have designed several initiatives to meet the needs of different stakeholders. Um, However, for our purposes today, I'll talk about just three of those initiatives. So you can see the different stakeholders that we serve and the different levels at which we operate. Um, But if you want more information about our our broader initiatives, you can go to our Citizen Scientist Project website. So at the pre-service teacher level, we have a citizen science seminar which exposes new teachers to the work of citizen science in their classroom and helps them to develop multidisciplinary citizen science unit plans that are grounded in California state standards. Then most importantly, they're grounded in local issues of community concern. Currently, we're working with the National Geographic Society to take the initial idea for the seminar and transform it into an online series of learning modules, which will be translated into Spanish, French, and Portuguese and made available to teachers all over the world through the National Geographic website. At the in-service teacher level, this is the one we're gonna most emphasize today with the Valley Fever Project, we have what's called our Citizen Scientist Project Teaching Fellows Program, which pairs educators and scientists to implement existing citizen science projects in their classroom or develop a new citizen science project for their classroom and their broader community. Uh, With this partnership, the educator generally brings the curricular and the pedagogical expertise And the scientist generally brings knowledge about the issue and scientific processes needed to reliably collect and analyze data. Thus far, we have two teams. We've had two teams of Citizen Scientist Project teaching fellows, including Valley Fever Project. And we're welcoming three more teams of fellows this coming academic year. In terms of the Valley Fever Project, the fellow team is composed of Catherine Lopes, who's a high school uh, biomedical engineering teacher. Uh, Oscar Delgado, who's a high school biology and environmental science teacher. Wade Shada, who's a pre-service teacher um, who's interested in teaching biology. And of course, Dr. Antia Lauer, who, who we have with us today, who's a CSUB professor of biology and valley fever expert who is serving as our, our scientists in this pair. The broader goal is to develop uh, or to better map valley fever in our community through dust sampling, better educate the community about Valley Fever, and then ultimately to display the data in a public-facing ArcGIS story map. Um, In the coming year, thanks to Dr. Lauer's connections, we'll also work with the Valley Fever Institute to contribute to their public education efforts. Now at the state level, uh, we are working with a multidisciplinary team of CSU educator preparation faculty to develop curriculum pedagogy regarding the intersection of climate change and wildfires in California. This work is part of the UC-CSU Environmental and Climate Change Literacy Project, which is the first large-scale project between the UC and CSU system of of its kind and focuses on educator preparation as a lever for uh, improving climate change and environmental literacy in California. Our approach is inspired by the work of the Museum of Science in Boston, NOAA, and SciStarter. We're developing what is called a forum, which will take teachers, students, and community stakeholders through phases of learning the broad science of climate change and its impact on wildfires, uh, learning specifically about the community of Paradise, California, and the campfire that happened there, the different stakeholder perspectives on what should be done to rebuild or not rebuild the community of Paradise, uh, exploring the different resiliency plans that could be in place, um, engaging in collaborative decision-making regarding how to invest limited community resources and one or more resiliency plans. And then ultimately, as that taking informed action step participate in a citizen science project related to wildfires in California. So they're not only learning about the issue, but then through citizen science, building their agency to collect data that scientists can use to make more informed decisions about resiliency plans. So those are three of our our many initiatives that I think speak to the different stakeholders we serve, the different uh, levels at which we operate.
0: Great, thank you for that uh, summary of all your uh, different projects. Antje, it's my understanding that uh, prior to working together on this project, your work focused on valley fever in the region. How did this partnership begin? And how did you get involved in the Citizen Science Project?
2: So um, I met Brittany when I became the Faculty Sustainability Coordinator here at CSU Bakersfield last November, so about that time. And I didn't even know that um, Brittany was uh, in charge of the citizen science project. We talked at the faculty sustainability meetings about potential projects regarding sustainability, of course. And, um, you know, Valley Fever, um, you might think it's not really a project related to sustainability. But when you think about how land is being used here in California, it's an indirect outcome of land disturbance that we have increase in incidence of valley fever so we have a lot of renewable energy projects here in the Mojave desert that spike that resulted in spikes of valley uh, fever in northern los angeles county and the wind is bringing the dust down into the valley so we talked about these things at the meeting and then Brittany said oh wait this is, this would be a great project uh, that we could develop into a citizen science uh, project so that we involve people who help us to gather more data So I have to explain a little bit about why we need more data. So valley fever is not something new. Valley fever is known since uh, 1920 or even earlier. And what is not so much known is why the pathogen um, occurs in some areas and why it doesn't in others. And also researchers have predicted that uh, due to climate change, the pathogen might likely expand its habitat. So we need more data to see which of the two species, Coxidus posadasi or coccidus emitis, which is the one that predominantly occurs in California, might expand or both and where to. And the easiest way to do that is to look, to look into the dust samples, to investigate dust samples. Because when we investigate just soil samples, you know, this is a location where the pathogen might spread, well, not that far, but when it becomes airborne, it can actually spread many, many kilometers. Thus storms have spread the pathogen further north than Sacramento. So um, the idea was to, to get more environmental data. And second, that was actually, the second part is actually more important, is that we increase educational valley fever because there are a lot of misconceptions on this disease. There are a lot of people here in Kern County that think that belly fever is caused by a virus, that it is contagious, or that you don't need to worry about it. Um, they think, oh, you can take an antifungal and then you get cured. You know, it's uh, there are a lot of misconceptions. And uh, by attending support groups where patients uh, talk about their experience with the disease, it's sometimes heartbreaking to see what happens if you get the disease and your immune system is not able to fight it. So we have to do everything to, reduce incidence so that not that many people actually contract the pathogen. It's, it's, it's a problem because we have more and more people that also are immune compromised. So education on the pathogen is number one and educating kids would be great because they can educate their entire family.
0: Great, thanks uh, Antje. You now I find it very interesting now that you're working in realm of citizen science and need for better words, sometimes the pathology of traditional STEM researchers kind of stay within their lane where they very, are very traditionalists. You know, they, you know, they did their undergraduate, their PhD, their postdoc in, in certain areas, not only in terms of the research, but how they progress in their research and to now start working with citizen scientists that many of which do not have higher degrees in STEM they sometimes they will often kind of stay away from bringing them into the fold but it's very important to work with people who might bring a different lens a different optics in terms of examining a problem and certainly giving opportunities to for young people to explore stem and to learn you know really get to work on the the ground level uh to get their, their hands wet in working. Uh, on, on problems that they may not have the opportunity to in K through 12. So how is it that you embraced this work because your work probably like mine was very traditional in terms of how we, we were brought up in terms of our scientific types of education. You know, what made you, uh, I won't say op- be, uh, you know, open up, but what made you open to working in something that you probably were not looking for at the time, but just was there as an opportunity and now you've embraced it.
2: Yeah, so it's not completely new to me to work with uh, young folks. So when I started here at CSUB, we every summer we offered um, research experience for high school students. So the youngest students that I had in my lab, they were 15 years old. And, you know, I'm doing molecular biology and I was surprised, surprised, surprised how quickly those kids were actually picking up the technique that they were asking good questions. So they really wanted to learn the material. So most of them wanted to go into the medical field. So I'm not a medical scientist, but the methods that a medical scientist use is the same as methods that are being used in environmental science, DNA extraction, PCR, agarose, gel electrophoresis DGGE, cloning, all these things. So the only challenge is that you have to be a good educator. You have to digest it to them and you need to give them time. So, um, we did a couple of workshops or we did two workshops with teachers here and we had, um, yeah, we want to repeat this. So we want to, give the teachers time first to learn the technique, to understand the background, so that they are able to teach the young folks in their class. So my responsibility was to teach the teachers. So I'm not working with the high school students in the citizen science project. I work with the teachers. So when I teach the teachers, they have the opportunity to ask me everything that they think their students might ask. So they have the experience. You know, I've experienced with young students, too. So I know what probably will be asked and where I have to be careful. Yeah. So um, attention span is very short. You know, you have to repeat things, you know, all these things. But once it clicks, they're actually pretty good and can do some amazing work. Yeah. And uh, I hope that that we can teach them in a way that they produce reliable data. So in the future. So. Our priority is not to publish this data. Um, if we ever want to publish this, I have to probably repeat some of these PCRs just to see if, if it's correct. Yeah, but so far, actually, when we did our first workshop from, I think the 22 DNA extractions that, um, that were done, actually only one failed. So that was pretty good. And then the PCRs also worked. Yeah, so I I did uh, a couple with undergraduate students uh, here at CSUB just to see if it works. So it was good quality. So that first step was already successful. And then the students just need to learn how to work with pipettes and then just do PCRs like a cooking recipe, just avoiding contamination, you know, um, and once they have this down, it's actually not hard.
0: Great, thank you. So this next question is for both of you. Uh, this project is an ambitious one with, it appears, many moving pieces. How do you manage it? And what has been the partnership experience from, with the local schools in uh, your county?
1: Right. So the, this Valley Fever project in particular um, is serving as a model for multidisciplinary and multi-stakeholder citizen science collaboration between educators and scientists in our community to offer a little bit more detail to what Anke uh, just uh, spoke to, the team of fellows met regularly throughout the spring semester to determine and address needs for before, during, and after implementation of this project in the classroom. Dr. Lauer offered the broader context of Valley Fever in the community based on her research, including the vast amount of misinformation that exists and is one of our core purposes for, for pursuing this project, and trained the teachers how to collect and analyze reliable dust sample data. Um, From there, the teachers develop the curriculum they use with their students, foregrounding and backgrounding their different disciplines with the intersecting disciplines of the project. And from this pilot experience, we now have a better sense of how much time the project takes, what supplies might be better than others for collection and analysis, and what types of myths we may need to bust for the students. So for example, in Catherine Lopes' class, her biomedical engineering class, 70% of her students uh, had or knew someone who has had valley fever. um, And nearly all of them had misconceptions about it, which is consistent with Dr. Lauer's prior research and existing research about valley fever in the community. Um, And so the the, the strength of the project, I think, was Dr. Lauer and the, the, the teachers who understood the, the power of citizen science in the classroom. They were willing to be vulnerable, um, to, to be novices and to, to try something new um, and to work across disciplines to create a cohesive experience for their students. And so that, that willingness to be a novice, that willingness to be vulnerable, you know, ultimately created perfect conditions for, for innovation. And we'll take these lessons learned and you know, apply it again next year. It's the hope that, so the pilot was so successful that the Kern High School District, you know, wants to scale this to other high schools. So we started working with just two high schools, but it's the intent to have Kern High adopt this project, you know, in perpetuity with Dr. Lauer. And so year after year, the classes will continue to contribute to data collection and data analysis efforts and to continue to improve education about Valley Fever in the community. And improve the, the scale of, of data collection that we have um, about the, about the fungus
0: How has this project inspired your uh, local high school students in your area to become scientists uh, and are mindful of the environment that surrounds them and which impacts them?
2: You know let me answer so I have not worked with these students but I've worked with other students in the past and I know often students uh, have no idea what it actually takes to work in a lab. They think putting on a white coat and then do a little bit here and a little bit there, and then they can generate some amazing data. So you have to actually acquire some skills. And some students then recognize that it's not for them, that they are not able to be patient and have the the skills to actually be a good lab scientist. So it's good that students have the ability to try these things before they commit to maybe um, something larger. So that's what what I think is important. But as I said, the students that I worked with um, were mostly amazing. So I really enjoyed working with them. And um, I also follow still my students when they finished graduation, where they where they're going or the students who joined research in the summer with me, what they are up to now. So I see that many actually really are um, going into the medical field, but not all of them. Some also discovered the environmental world and are now working for some environmental consulting companies doing something completely different. But even if you're an environmental consultant, it's good to know these methods, how people actually determine, let's say, if there's a pathogen in the soil or why did these kind of animals die. You know, it's good if you have some broad knowledge on a lot of methods that are being used in the field that are, um, that are essential to understand actually what's going on. And to be a good scientist, you have to be a broad scientist. Yeah, And we hope that we can give this message to our students too. And, and by being involved in this project, at least um, they learn some of the molecular tools that are essential in, in every lab, medical or environmental.
1: Based on some preliminary data we've collected on the student experience, the students are, were craving this type of real-world application to some of the C-STEM learning that they've done thus far and were introduced to through this project. Um, and there are even some who, based on their experience, you know, want to become epidemiologists. They want uh, Valley Fever to be their their focus as they go as they transition from high school into college. Um, and the teachers have said that they're already getting calls from incoming freshmen asking if they can become a part of this Valley Fever project. And so it's it's resonating with students, um, and they're craving this type of real world relevant like multidisciplinary work. And I think one of the, the powerful experiences and the ways in which we can try to contextualize this work is through storytelling. So um, the curriculum that the teachers developed actually started with interviewing people who have survived Valley Fever or are currently battling Valley Fever and to hear their experiences of you know, being misdiagnosed, not knowing the right questions to ask you know, understanding that some preventative measures could have prevent years of grappling with this illness, it helped to build the the why. And I think that that storytelling and that's part of our work in general is how do we use storytelling to contextualize the science work, to humanize it, to build both motivation and momentum, to inspire you know the next generation to to problem solve. And there there's a Dr. Jeffrey Duncan Andrade, he's a professor up in Northern California, um, and he talks to the purpose of education. And he says, the purpose of education is not to uh, escape poverty. You know, sometimes we tell students that you, you know, you can use your education to get out of this community, to, to, to go somewhere, do something better. Instead, he says the purpose of education should be to end poverty. Um, in your community, and so how do you engage the material and ideological realities of the students you serve in the classroom? And so that's what we're trying to do. Instead of educating our students to get out of Kern County and you know leave these Valley Fever hotspots, how do we educate students to end Valley Fever in the community? Um, so that's a big part of our why, and you know some of the things that we're seeing in, in our preliminary data that that students are are really grasping onto. And I think you know, just as important as the student learning is the, the teacher learning in this project. So the, the grant, Citizen Scientist Project grant, is ultimately a grant that's focused on teacher education. And so this experience, at least in our, in our pilot for Kate, Wade, and Oscar, it's given them more robust opportunity for what it means to engage real-world issues in the classroom, to collect real data, to analyze real data, and to use that to inform you know, state or sorry local decision-making.
0: So it certainly sounds that the issue of poverty as a goal to try to eradicate is something that citizen science projects hope to have an influence on in not only involving students in your programs that of course help them move away from communities that where poverty is is a commonplace but of course to play a big role in, in doing away with it in those communities. So it seems to be quite rewarding to both of you. you know, what are you know, some of the, the other positive attributes that you have uh, ob- obtained during your program that you would like to speak upon that, uh, that, that really give you passion for your work?
1: Before I dive into some of the, uh, like what the research suggests are are like powerful opportunities for citizen science and powerful learning outcomes, when we think about ending poverty in the context of citizen science, I think our focus is on the environmental justice issues that tend to be associated with poverty. So, for example, if you look on the EPA's environmental justice screen uh, map, that's interactive. The San Joaquin Valley is at risk for nearly every environmental justice issue um, and has a high percentage of historically marginalized and in high poverty communities. So when we think about our work in the context of ending poverty, it's it's connected to ending these environmental justice issues that disproportionately impact low income and communities of color. So on that, so um, educators who uh design new or implementing or implement existing citizen science projects seek to involve students in authentic scientific research develop students agency to address real world problems and build students scientific knowledge and competencies and a growing body of evidence supports these potential learning outcomes for citizen science participants citizen science projects can change behaviors and attitudes about science increase general and content-specific knowledge about science, and foster a more nuanced understanding regarding the nature of science and scientific endeavors, and especially the idea that they can be a part of science. They are scientists. Uh, There are also outcomes that speak to the improved relation of the individual to the community, to the natural world, to each other, so between teacher and student, an improved relationship as they engage in an inquiry together. And it reduces some of the real or perceived power hierarchies that could exist in science instruction, where there's a more knowledgeable other, you know giving knowledge to a student instead of this shared uh, inquiry and, and shared questioning. And that's not necessarily knowing what's going to happen next. Now, research also suggests that uh, citizen science participants may also experience an improved sense of social well-being as they have potential to influence the questions that are being posed about their community. And they also have an entry point to dialogue about local decision-making and policy change. Preliminary studies suggest that these educated, embedded citizen science experiences may also help to build students' scientific literacy, scientific identity, and agency with community problem-solving. And at the higher education level, there are also studies to suggest that students who participate in citizen science projects demonstrate higher scores and improved critical thinking. And then especially for students who move beyond participation in a citizen science project to co-developing or co-leading a citizen science project, which we've done, they tend to more frequently engage in interdisciplinary dialogue and more advanced science communication, just competency in general. Um, And that's part of what we emphasize with this work is how do we make science public facing? And so it's easily understood um, by by the general public and also has an opportunity for them to make sure that their community or their part of the communities in the data collection and analysis efforts and that they are able to then, you know,
2: communicate this this work to others and the importance of it and their role in addressing it. Yeah, one thing I want to add, you know, I was happy to see that there was actually a school that is located in East Bakersfield involved in this project because People who know Bakersfield know that East Bakersfield is the area where the poor live. This is mostly a community of Mexican American, African American folks, and um, the schools struggle with attendance. The schools struggle with um, getting good teachers. But occasionally there are a few, like Oscar. He's uh, at the school at in East Bakersfield. Because honestly, usually when a school offers these type of projects, they are offered for AP classes or for those students that are already dedicated to school that are A students. But what about all these other students that are C students or are not attending school regularly? You know, if you if you really wanna change poverty, we need to educate them too. And not those that already have a strong support from home or or um, they know themselves what they want to do. We need to include more schools like East Bakersfield. So this is what I hope that in the future we can work on, that we invite schools that have students that struggle, because if we give them a little light, you know, something meaningful to work for, we might change their lives. You know, this is, I think, the most important thing that I see that that we can do. Because supporting the rich, supporting those that already have a lot of support, doesn't make a lot of sense. This is usually how it's done, right? If
0: you're honest. So it looks like what you're both talking about is how CS democratizes science. You know, I see a direct correlation between some of the projects we've worked on at STEMnet, where we've used the UN uh, Sustainable Developmental Goals as a kind of a foundation in developing some of our, our projects. And how we can tie in to them, and how you know a lot of our students, yes, they want to learn science, but they want to relate it to something that is uh, that is community related. There's a lot of uh, a lot of people of color that have an interest in in trying to solve problems of where they were raised. They have that uh, go to type of spirit. They're like makerspace type of mentality been very, very interesting. How can our listeners connect with both of you uh, online moving forward? Because I'm sure there's probably a great deal of CSU, not only students but faculty, that would like to know more about your your programs and how they might try to initiate uh, like type programs on their campuses.
1: For those who are interested in learning more or connecting about how we can scale our work to their community or campus, you can reach out to me directly at bbeck 4 at csub.edu. It's the most uh, direct way way to reach me. Um, If you're interested in just learning more about our work, you can visit our Citizen Scientist Project website, which is citizenscientistproject.org. You can also follow me on Twitter, where I usually post weekly updates about what we're doing and what we're innovating or trying. Um, and my handle is at
2: Brittany slash or underscore Beck. If you want to reach me on social media. Yeah. I'm not so active on social media, but you can reach me by looking up my name on the biology website, you know, biology department at CSUB, you know, I'm listed there with my CSUB page and my email and my phone number
0: so uh finally if you could turn back the clock and talk to your 18 year old selves what will you do tell her and her
2: and i start you know this is actually a really good question i was waiting for that you know because when i was 18 i was very shy and i was not really active i would never have asked somebody to be included in in any of any things like type of research like this i would never have asked my teacher i was very shy and um this is something that um i would say teachers need to have an eye out you know to actually also look for those students that are a little um hesitant to raise their voice or something and some are maybe late bloomers you know so i would give my 18 year old self advised to be a little more proactive and nowadays living in the digital age there is so much information out there where you can get an amazing diversity of opportunities and that was not possible when when I graduated from high school in 1986 (laughs) that was not possible so now there's a lot of information that might be inspiring and then you can You can reach out via email, you don't need to speak to a person first, you can reach out via email, you can look at websites, you can look at Twitter accounts, you know, it's so much easier to obtain information compared to when, when I was 18 years old.
1: For me, I was the, I was the first in my family to go away for college. And I fully embraced it. I, I, I rarely came home. And so I would tell my 18 year old self to go home more on the weekends when I when I could, because there I think there are so much so many family events that I missed, you know, in the pursuit of this, this higher education. But now as I think back on it, you know, I want I want some of those moments back, I think. And then two would be to wear sunscreen always.
0: Well, that's all for today's episode of All Things STEM. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to Drs. Beck and Laura for speaking with me today and to all of you for being here. Join us again next time. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you may listen to your podcast. Until next time.